This is a Romy cast. Happy Christmas, Paul. Happy Christmas, Gary. So this is Christmas. And what have you done? Another year over. And you won't just be gone. Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Take me one. Oh, there we go. Can we just have a little less guitar in the earphones? Oh, that's all right. The bit that John finally got just after that, and we were both going to do what he wanted to do. Hello there, and welcome to this special Christmas bonus episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Ho, ho, ho. There's my best Santa Claus for you. Uh, it is a wonderful time of the year, a time to spend with friends and family and raise a glass. And we're going to raise a glass here to the great music that has been given to us by the greatest band in the history of music, The Beatles. It's just me for this episode, so we'll have a little bit of fun and we will talk some Beatles Christmas number ones. But before we do that, I just want to remind you that the podcast website is romycast.com. That's R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T dot com. If you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far in this series. This is a special bonus episode uh, on Beatles Christmas number one songs. There are 12 episodes of series two and counting. We have more to come and you can find them all at the website as well as all 15 episodes of series one. And if you see fit, could you please... Please make a donation to support keeping the show commercial free. Any donation is much appreciated and your donation goes towards offsetting the costs of the show, uh, web hosting, advertising, some equipment costs. It is a labor of love for me, as I always say. But if you enjoy the show, please consider a donation to support the show. Uh, I don't donate to every podcast that I listen to. I, I know most people don't. That's the deal. Uh, but if you enjoy this one, and I know there are a lot of people out there who download every episode, then maybe just a couple of bucks per episode. It's not that much, and it really does help me offset some costs. Just click on the Donate button on the website if you would like to donate. 
Uh, along those lines, a big shout-out to Jason Kapitko, who sent along a donation recently, as well as a very cool Tim Hortons Wayne Gretzky insulated coffee mug. <clears throat> Matter of fact, I am sipping from that mug as I am recording this. So, Jason, thank you so much. Uh, and also, Bruce Hamilton made a donation, and he says, really enjoy the show. I've always been a big Beatles fan and of Beatles trivia too. Well, indeed, Bruce, you've come to the right place, and thank you for your note and for your donation. Andrew Cowie also made a donation recently. Andrew, thank you very, very much. I just want to quickly run down a list of some other people who donated in 2021. Uh, that list includes Chathan Lakshman, Jane Gowan, Janet McDonald, Jeff Long, Jonathan Huber, Andre Rybeck, Dave Ellenbass, Ernie Penn, Gary Dickens, Joel Rathjen, and Patrick Asada. Thank you one and all. I really, really do appreciate it. It all goes towards offsetting costs for the podcasts and me uh, saving enough to buy um, my own uh, jet. The uh, Walrus was Paul Jett, so I can fly around and do all the interviews. <laughs> I wish. If you'd like to make a donation, I'll give you a shout-out as well. All you have to do is visit the website, romicast.com, where you can make a donation and, and uh, send me a note with that donation as well. Also, if you don't already, please do subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast provider. And if you could, leave a positive review or rating. Thank you very much for that. And uh, a little bird told me, I believe now it's just started. You can leave a rating on Spotify. Uh, used to be you couldn't do that. Most of you listen on Apple Podcasts. That's the platform of choice going by uh, the stats that I see. But second is Spotify. So if you're listening on Spotify, you can now leave a review and or a rating. Please do that. Doesn't cost you a penny, just a, a little bit of your time and would be greatly appreciated. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram at the handle Romanuk Paul. That is also the best way to get in touch or comment on any of the episodes. So, if you're listening in the UK, I don't have to explain to you the significance of having a Christmas number one single on the charts. Now, certainly things have changed over the years, as they have everywhere and with everything. But it's still a thing to have that distinction if you're a musical act in the UK, a Christmas number one. I remember moving to London in September of 2005, and as the Christmas season moved in, hearing talk on BBC radio, on the music stations, and also reading about it in the newspapers, speculation about what song might be the Christmas number one. It was a thing that I wasn't really familiar with with. You certainly didn't talk about it where I grew up in Canada uh, and nor in the United States. I didn't hear that kind of talk. Now that particular year, the year that we moved there, it was a massively forgettable piece of fluff <laughs> called That's My Goal by a British singer named Shane Ward. Uh, it was his winning song in the second series of the reality TV series X Factor in the UK. Uh, that actually became a thing, speaking of things. Uh, it started a run of four straight years of 
pretty crappy X Factor winner singles. Now, I'm not a reality TV guy at all, uh, so not my thing. And not a lot of other people's thing either, uh, particularly big music fans, because there was a grassroots campaign that was started in 2009 to put an end to that X Factor streak. And people streamed and purchased a song by by a, a pretty rangy band, uh, Rage Against the Machine. Remember them? Uh, there was a single called Killing in the Name, and it was from 1993. Here's a sample. Okay, so the grassroots campaign to make Killing in the Name by Rage Against the Machine and kind of thumb its nose at the X Factor's run of having number one Christmas singles, it worked. And Killing in the Name was the 2001 Christmas number one. And that was it for the run of X Factor Christmas number ones. Kind of a funny story, but I digress. My point being, it's a big deal to have a Christmas number one single in the UK and music fans care about it. The Beatles, as you probably know, were big on singles. Unlike many bands, they did songs that were standalone singles. That meaning that most of them came out on a 45 RPM record with a B-side and they did not appear on an album. There was a real feeling inside the Beatles camp that you didn't rip the fans off by making them buy the same song twice. Now, this was a direct contrast to the American marketing strategy of placing a big single on an album to drive sales of the album. That's the tried and true method in North America for sure. That's one reason why prior to 1967, the Beatles album and singles catalogs in the U.S. and Canada were very different from their real catalog, if you will, in the U.K., So just think about this. Here's a little bit of context for you. She loves you. From me to you. I feel fine. She's a woman. I'm down. We can work it out. Day tripper. Paperback writer. Rain. Lady Madonna. Hey Jude. Revolution. The Ballad of John and Yoko. None of those tracks appeared on an original British album. They were standalone singles. Furthermore, Magical Mystery Tour, which was originally not an album in the UK, it was a a much beloved album that was put together in North America and uh, came out for the Christmas market in 1967, was very successful. Uh, In the UK, it was just an EP, and the only tracks on that EP 
were tracks from the television special. So you can add to the list of standalone singles, Strawberry Fields Forever, Penny Lane, Hello Goodbye, and All You Need Is Love. They never appeared on an LP or an EP in the UK. Just singles. Speaking of singles... The new Musical Express chart was the first and definitive UK singles chart. And of the 22 singles or double A sides the Beatles released in the UK during the time in which they were together, 18 of those 22 were number ones. What a run. They also hold the record for the most Christmas number ones with four. And we're going to talk about those four, and we'll do it in chronological order, starting with 1963 and I Want to Hold Your Hand. Oh, yeah, I tell you something, I think you'll understand. When I say that something, I want to hold your hand. The sixth single released by the Beatles in the UK. They'd had number ones with From Me to You and She Loves You. And depending on which chart you wanted to go by, Please Please Me. None of those, however, had been released for the Christmas market. This song specifically was. It was released as a single on November the 29th, 1963. It entered the charts at number 10. A week later, it was number one. And at the time, a little unprecedented because it knocked She Loves You off of the number one spot. And it was the first time that the same act had replaced itself at the top of the singles chart. The song remained number one for five consecutive weeks. It was in the top 100 singles chart for 21 weeks in the UK. Now, famously, it was the Beatles' first number one in the US. That was the single that broke them in the United States. I Want to Hold Your Hand was released in the US on the 26th of December. They rush released it uh, with I Saw Her Standing There on the B side. And the response in the US was instant. 750,000 copies were sold in the first three days and 10,000 copies, get this, 10,000 copies were sold each hour in New York City. 10,000 copies an hour in New York City. A capital, overwhelmed by the demand, went to their competitors, Columbia Records and RCA, to get them to press extra copies. Interesting Canadian side note to all of that, though. As per Canadian Beatles historian Pierce Hemmingson, I Want to Hold Your Hand wasn't released in Canada until three weeks after it had been released in the United States. Now, here's the reason. Uh, Releases between Capital USA and Capital Canada weren't particularly coordinated as far as the Beatles were concerned. Capital Canada had jumped onto the Beatles bandwagon before the USA and were having success before Capital USA eventually showed up at the party. When Capital USA released I Want to Hold Your Hand, Capital Canada had no intention of releasing the single at that time because Rollover Beethoven was riding high in the charts. 
Uh, the song eventually was released and hit number one in Canada on the chump charts, but not until February of 1964, where it topped the singles chart for six weeks. A few notes about the song. It was recorded on October the 17th, 1963 at Abbey Road in Studio 2. It was the first song that the Beatles recorded using four-track technology. Their previous releases had all been completed using just the two tracks. It was recorded in 17 takes. Paul McCartney remembers in a book called Many Years From Now that he did with Barry Miles. I heard tapes recently of me counting in I Want to Hold Your Hand, which was our first number one in the States. And I'm being pretty bossy. Shh, shh. Clean beginning. Come on, everyone. One, two. No, come on. Get it right. And I can see how that could get on your nerves. I want to hold your hand. Take one. And build up the beginning. Take two. No, I think it's just all loud. Do it slower. No. Shh. Clean beginning now. One, two, three. Take nine. Hold on. Shh. Ready. Shh. Ringo, keep your bit dead. Ringo! We're taping. First one, very initial attack. One, two, three. No, the first one, allowed. Attack. The second one, not quite so loud. Just try it. Oh, well, do it anyway. We'll just blast that bit, that one bit. Oh, yeah! Bum, bum, bum. Right. Clean beginning. One, two, three. The song was written by Lennon and McCartney, and it was written in the basement of Jane Asher's parents' house in Wimpole Street in London. John Lennon remembers uh, in an interview from 1980, We wrote a lot of stuff together, one-on-one, eyeball-to-eyeball, like in I Want to Hold Your Hand. I remember when we got the chord that made the song. We were in Jane Asher's house downstairs in the cellar playing on the piano at the same time. And we had, oh, you got that something. And Paul hits this chord. And I turn to him and say, that's it. I said, do it again. In those days, we really used to absolutely write like that, both playing into each other's nose. John Lennon having that recollection in a book he did with David Sheff called All We Are Saying. The Beatles also recorded the singles B-side, This Boy, on October the 17th, so the same day of those just beautiful, sparkling, three-part harmonies that, uh, you know, just their hallmark. And prior to both of those songs, they taped the first of seven Christmas recordings to be given away free to members of the group's fan club. They did that for a number of years, the Beatles fan club recordings, and I did a special on that last year for the Christmas special. So if you want to hear about those recordings, uh, go back in the archive wherever you get your podcasts or at the website Romycast, and you can give a listen to that. So we move on to 1964. So they have the Christmas number one in 1963. Now it is Christmas 1964, and it is I Feel Fine.
good to me You know she's happy as can be You know she said so I'm in love with her and I feel fine Baby says she's mine You know she tells me all the time You know she said so was the Beatles' eighth single, and it was written and recorded during the Beatles' for sale sessions. Originally, as the plan had gone, eight days a week was pegged as the single. That was going to be the song. But that was scrapped when, mainly, John Lennon came up with I Feel Fine. It was released on November the 27th, 1964 in the UK. It entered the singles chart right at the top. This was peak Beatlemania. It entered at number one, selling more than 800,000 copies in the UK in the first five days. And the single remained at the top of the charts for a total of six weeks. And by December the 11th, had sold over a million copies. John Lennon, talking in 1964, said... With I Feel Fine, we were ready to get to number five at first go, and I suppose if we'd have done that, we'd have been written off. Nobody would have remembered that the Beatles had had six number ones on the trot before I Feel Fine. Coming in at number one was great because, well, we weren't sure we'd do it. John Lennon said that in 1964. I Feel Fine was released in the U.S. on the 23rd of November and sold more than a million copies in its first week of release. It entered the top 40 on the 5th of December at number 22, and by the 26th of December, it was number one. And it stayed there for three weeks and remained in the top 40 for a total of 11 weeks. In Canada, on the Chump Chart, it hit number one the week of December 21st, and it topped the singles chart for five weeks. Uh, John Lennon in 1964 said, I wrote I Feel Fine around the riff, which is going on in the background. I tried to get that effect into practically every song in the LP, but the others wouldn't have it. Uh, I told them that I'd write a song specifically for this riff. So they said, yeah, you go away and do that, knowing that we'd almost finished the album. Anyway, going into the studio one morning, I said to Ringo, I've written this song, but it's lousy. But we tried it, complete with the riff, and it sounded like an A-side. So we decided to release it just like that. John Lennon plays an acoustic Gibson guitar in the recording, although it was amplified to give the impression of an electric guitar. Uh, George Harrison used an electric Gresh Tennessean. Now, the Beatles recorded I Feel Fine on the 18th of October, 1964, and it was completed in nine takes. The first eight were of rhythm track only, and the final take was an overdub of the vocals. Uh, It was the first Beatles song to have the backing track recorded before the vocals, as John Lennon apparently had trouble singing and playing the riff at the same time. A couple of other distinctive things about the song. The distinctive opening note, you know, the... That feedback... result of a low A note 
plucked by Paul McCartney on his bass, while Lennon's guitar pickups were directed towards his amplifier. It was one of the very first instances of feedback being used on a record and demonstrated the increased confidence the Beatles had as recording artists. Uh, This is Paul McCartney's recollection of it. John had a semi-acoustic Gibson guitar. It had a pickup on it so it could be amplified. John and George both had them. We were just about to walk away to listen to the take when John leaned his guitar against the amp. I can still see him doing it. He really should have turned the electric off. It was only on a tiny bit, and John just leaned it against the amp when it went, and we went, whoa, what's that, voodoo? No, it's feedback. Wow, it's a great sound. George Martin was there, so we said, can we have that on the record? Well, I suppose we could. We could edit it on the front. It was a found object, an accident caused by leaning the guitar against the amp. Paul McCartney with that reminiscence in many years from now. The other distinctive thing about it, I think, uh, it just drives the track along, uh, Ringo's drum part. Drumming, as Paul McCartney recalls, is basically what we used to think of as what I'd say drumming. There was a style of drumming on what I'd say about a sort of Latin R&B thing that Ray Charles' drummer, Milt Turner, played on the original record. And we used to love it, recalled McCartney. Uh, One of the big clinching factors about Ringo as the drummer in the band was that he could really play that so well. So next we go to 1965. So they had the Christmas number one in 63, 64. Now we're in 1965 and this is a Christmas number one, but it's a double A side. We can work it out and day tripper.
Now, the Beatles wanted a single to accompany their new album, Rubber Soul, and they planned to release the single on the same day as the album. But as I've talked about before, they didn't put singles on the album, but they were going to release a single on the same day as the album. Try to explain that to a marketer in this day and age. (laughs) Day Tripper was originally intended to be the Beatles' final single of 1965. However, We Can Work It Out was felt by the group and Brian Epstein to be a more commercial song. John Lennon disagreed, and he fought to retain Day Tripper as the lead song. So at the end of the day, the result was the single being marketed as the world's first double A-side single. That was a first at the time in 1965. Day Tripper, We Can Work It Out was released in the UK on the 3rd of December 1965, the same day as the Rubber Soul album, as I mentioned, on which it did not feature. Five days later, the single entered the chart at number one, where it remained for five weeks. It sold over a million copies. Uh, It didn't fare quite as well in the US, where it was released on the 6th of December. Over in the United States and in Canada, We Can Work It Out was the more successful of the two titles. Day Tripper peaked at number five on the Billboard Hot 100 and stayed in the top 40 for eight weeks. In Canada, the double A side hit the top position on the Chum Chart on December the 27th and stayed at number one for six consecutive weeks. We Can Work It Out was the song that got the most play in Canada. But let's start with Day Tripper. So under the pressure of needing a new single for the Christmas market, Lennon wrote much of the music and most of the lyrics, while McCartney worked on the verses. A day tripper was a typical play on words by John Lennon. Uh, day trippers are people who go on a day trip, right? Usually on a ferry boat or something. But the song was kind of, well, you're just a weekend hippie. Get it? In the same interview, Lennon said, that's mine, including the lick, the guitar break, the whole bit. McCartney has a slightly different recollection. He says, That was a co-written effort. We were both there making it all up, but I would give John the main credit. Probably the idea came from John because he sang the lead, but it was a close thing. We both put a lot of work in on it. And also, a recollection, Day Tripper was to do with tripping. Acid was coming in on the scene, and often we do these songs about the girl who thought she was it. But this was just a tongue-in-cheek song about someone who was a day tripper, a Sunday painter, Sunday driver, somebody who was committed only in part to the idea, whereas we saw ourselves as full-time trippers, fully committed drivers. She was just a day tripper. That was a recollection of Paul McCartney. 
Day Tripper was recorded in the afternoon of the 16th of October 1965 during the Rubber Soul sessions. The band spent some hours rehearsing the backing rhythm track, recording three takes, only the final one of which was a complete take. And then that evening, they added a number of overdubs. Lennon and McCartney both shared lead vocals, and Lennon played the climactic guitar solo. On October the 20th, they started work on Weekend Work It Out. Try to see it my way. Do I have to keep on talking till I can go on? While you see it your way. But the risk of knowing that our love may soon be gone. We can work it out. We can work it out. Think of what you're saying. You can get it wrong. They completed work on uh, this track on October the 29th, so they recorded it over two days in sessions that amounted to a total of 11 hours, and at the time, that was the Beatles' longest time spent completing a song. We Can Work It Out bore the distinctive hallmarks of both of its songwriters. So Paul McCartney wrote the upbeat verses and chorus, reportedly after a disagreement with Jane Asher, his girlfriend at the time. While John Lennon had the idea for the pessimistic life is very short counterpoint. Classic Lennon and McCartney. As John Lennon recalled in 1980, in We Can Work It Out, Paul did the first half, I did the middle eight. But you've got Paul writing, we can work it out, we can work it out, real optimistic, you know, and me impatient. Life is very short and there's no time for fussing and fighting, my friend. That was John Lennon with that recollection. Paul McCartney remembers, I had the idea, the title, had a couple of verses and the basic idea for it. Then I took it to John to finish it off and we wrote the middle together, which is nice. Life is very short. There's no time for fussing and fighting, my friend. And then it was George Harrison's idea to put the middle into a waltz time, like a German waltz. That came on the session. It was one of the cases of the arrangement being done on the session. We Can Work It Out was the last of six number one singles in a row on the American charts for the Beatles, a record at the time. It was preceded by I Feel Fine, Eight Days a Week, Ticket to Ride, Help, and Yesterday. The song became the band's 11th number one, accomplished in just under two years' time. Astounding. So in 1966, there was no Beatles candidate for a Christmas number one. They didn't release a single for the Christmas market in 66. But in 1967...
Beatles final Christmas number one single. It was released in the UK on the 24th of November 1967 with I Am The Walrus on the B-side. I can remember I still see that 45 kicking around my parents house it was on the old capital orange and yellow label and I remember loving both songs but I particularly remember I am the walrus just blowing a little however old I was kids mind listening to that on an old mono record player that I had in my bedroom but fantastic single I remember it well and it was written specifically to be a Christmas single. It was their first single released since the death of Brian Epstein. Uh, And a dismayed John Lennon pushed for his composition, I Am the Walrus, to be the A-side. But he was overruled by McCartney and George Martin on the grounds that Hello Goodbye was the more commercial of the two tracks. Uh, Lennon remained dismissive of the song, Hello Goodbye. He later said, I Am the Walrus was the B-side to Hello Goodbye. Can you believe it? Now, to be fair to Paul McCartney and George Martin, uh, they were probably right because Hello Goodbye was number one for seven weeks on the UK chart, the longest run at number one since She Loves You. It wasn't as big in Canada, number one for only three weeks on the Chum chart and likewise on the RPM chart, but it was a big, big hit in the UK. George Martin scored the string parts, which are two violas, and added in the same session was some flute, a few flute parts, uh, and they were also added to Fool on the Hill. So they got lots done that day. After the false ending, there is a 45-second coda to take the song out, and interestingly, that wasn't something that they came up with later. That was there, uh, and an intended part of the song, right from take one. Hello, hello, take one. And uh, remember when the promotional films were shot for the song, for that coda bit, there were women in Hawaiian grass skirts. So in the songwriter's mind, McCartney's, it had, for some reason, sort of a Hawaiian feel to it as far as he was concerned. In his recollection, McCartney says, the coda didn't sound quite right until Jeff Emmerich, who was the engineer, increased the reverb on the tom-tom drums, at which point... It just came alive. And that is really a distinctive part of the song, is the finish and those really heavy reverberated toms.
The composition came about through an exercise in word association between McCartney and Alistair Taylor, who was an assistant of the Beatles' manager Brian Epstein at the time. According to Taylor's recollection, he was visiting McCartney at his home in St. John's Wood in London and asked the Beatle how he went about writing a song. In response, McCartney took Taylor into the dining room, and they both sat down at a harmonium. McCartney then began playing the instrument, and he asked Taylor to call out the opposite to each word he happened to sing. Uh, Author Steve Turner, writing about the result of that, said, And so it went. Black and white, yes and no, stop and go, hello and goodbye. Taylor later reflected, I have no memory at all of the tune. I wonder whether Paul really made up the melody of that song as we went along or whether it was running through his head already. On November the 10th, 1967, the Beatles assembled at uh, the uh, Seville Theatre in London that was formerly owned by Brian Epstein, and they made three promotional films for Hello, Goodbye. The most common one you see, it's on YouTube and it's on video collections, Uh, it's the Beatles wearing their Sgt. Pepper costumes to perform in front of a psychedelic backdrop. And then a cutaway features the group wearing their old Beatles suits, their collarless suits from 1963. And then it was the Maori finale, as I mentioned earlier, where they had some local dancers who they hired who had grass skirts and they came in and said at the end, uh, Paul McCartney saying, uh, talking about it in the complete Beatles recording sessions by Mark Lewis and said, uh, I said, look, can we get a theater anywhere? How about Brian's? Is it ever empty for a minute or two? An afternoon? Sure. Great. We went down there, got some girls in Hawaiian skirts, got our Sgt. Pepper outfits on, and I just ran out there. Get a shot of this. Do this for a bit now. Let's have a shot there. Get a close-up of him. Get the girls on their own. Go back there. Get a wide angle. We'll edit it. We'll make it work. It was very thrown away, but nice to do stuff like that. I've uh, I've been in a few shoots like that. <laughs> the boat is well organized. Uh, that was the last Beatles Christmas number one, as I mentioned, though. Hello, goodbye. Uh, although... They had successful albums out over the season. Uh, More about those in a moment. But they didn't release any singles for the Christmas market in 1968, 1969, or 1970. Uh, As I mentioned off the top, the Beatles hold the UK chart record with four Christmas number one singles. Now, in terms of Beatles albums, well, they really cleaned up there if you're talking about number ones. Uh, As much as they released some singles for the Christmas market, it was mainly all about the albums for the Christmas market. And they hold the UK chart record with seven Christmas number one albums. 1963 with the Beatles. 1964 Beatles for Sale. 1965 Rubber Soul. 1967 Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. 1968 The White Album. 1969 Abbey Road. And then again, uh, those of you who are good with numbers, you were counting away there, you counted only six. Here's the seventh. You shuttle all the way ahead to the year 2000. And remember, one red album jacket with a yellow number one on it. That was a collection of their number one hits. And it is their all-time best-selling album, according to chartmasters.org, physical sales of over 33 million 
for the Beatles album One, which was the Christmas number one album in the year 2000, many years after they'd split up. Of the four fabs, only Paul McCartney has had a Christmas number one single as a solo artist, and it actually wasn't as a solo artist. It was with Wings, and it was a massive, massive hit in the UK. Barely made a ripple in North America. Ball of strolling in from the sea. My desire is always to be on all of McCartney remembers, I certainly loved Scotland enough, he said, so I came up with the song about where we were living, an area called Mull of Kintyre. It was a love song, really, about how I enjoyed being there and imagining I was traveling away and wanting to get back there. He said that about the song not long after he wrote it, and uh, that's a feeling we can all invoke. You want to get home. You have a longing for home. Mull of Kintyre was recorded on the 9th of August, 1977 at his studio at High Park Farm in Scotland during a break in recording from the London Town album. They had to take a break uh, because Linda McCartney was in an advanced state of pregnancy. Uh, the song featured bagpipes played by the Campbellton Pipe Band from nearby Campbellton. Paul's vocals and acoustic guitar were recorded outdoors, I guess, to pick up the ambience of the Scottish Highlands. Denny Lane co-wrote the song with him. Uh, now, for me, the song really comes into its own when the Campbellton Pipe Band kicks in. It is fantastic. The song's broad appeal was maximized by its pre-Christmas release in the UK, and it became a Christmas number one, spending nine weeks at the top of the charts. And it also became an international hit as well, charting high in Australia and many other countries over that holiday period. Uh, It went on to become the first single to sell over two million copies in the UK, and it became the UK's best-selling single of all time, eclipsing the Beatles' own She Loves You uh, until it was overtaken by Band-Aid's Do They Know It's Christmas in 1984. So yeah, big, big seller, over two million copies. Uh, Despite its international appeal, the song was not a major hit in North America, where the uh, flip side Girls' School received more airplay, if you can believe it. Uh, It reached number 33 on the Billboard Hot 100, and it was number 34 on the Canadian RPM chart. So I guess in this case, there was no accounting for taste in Canada. Uh, McCartney doesn't perform the song all that often, but when he does, he very often plays it in Canada. Uh, Most recently, in 2016, when he played it at shows in Vancouver, 
Vancouver and in Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, I have a personal recollection of this. I saw him perform the song on April the 13th, 2002 at the Air Canada Centre in Toronto. It was the Driving USA Tour uh, and it was the only time that he performed the song on that entire tour. It was part of the second encore and when the part of the song with the pipes kicks in and a full pipe and drum band of it was 10 or 15 people comes marching out onto the stage in full throat, uh, that is a hair stands up on the back of your neck moment. It was absolutely unforgettable, fantastic, and I love the song. So that is that. What is your favorite Beatles Christmas record of those that I just went through? Either Christmas-specific or one that chartered over the Christmas season? Do you have a Christmas Beatles memory? Maybe one of their albums that Santa left under the tree for you. Uh, I'll bet there are a few of you who may find a Let It Be box set stuffed into your stocking this year. That'll be a popular gift. Whatever the case, you can join the conversation in several ways. On the episode page for this podcast on my website, romicast.com there is a comment section on each individual episode page where you can uh, comment if you please we can also interact on twitter or instagram romanuk paul is the handle on both and of course there is facebook do a search on facebook for the walrus was paul podcast page and you can leave a comment there I want to take this opportunity to wish you and yours a most Merry Christmas. Thank you for your support of this podcast. And also, a massive thank you to all of my wonderful musical guests in 2021. Ron Sexsmith, Tim Bovacanti, Mo Berg, Dave Bedini, Terry Draper, Tara Lightfoot, Jane Gowan, Alan Piggins, Sam and Ryan, the Weber brothers, Stephen Stanley, Mike Daly, and Jim Cuddy and Colin Cripps. Thank you so much for your support of this podcast. So that is it for this 2021 The Walrus Was Paul Christmas special. I'll look forward to sending more episodes your way in the coming year. So long for now, and Merry Christmas. <laughs>